got any money from you. UFO might just as well stand for unprecedented financial opportunity. Be normal. This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. This is the Morris K. Jessup story. And we're beginning our look at the Philadelphia Experiment grand narrative and the mythologies that led to it and grew from it and got crazy and out of control. And we are starting with Morris K. Jessup, a UFO writer from the 1950s that would probably be even less well-known than he is were it not for what people, well, a person, I guess a, a person pretending to be multiple people did with and to one of his books and the investigations and the questions and the stories that spin out of those things. In this installment, we're going to be looking at Morris K. Jessup and uh, from his birth to his death and then subsequent installments in our Philadelphia Experiment series will go further and drill down on some of the things that we'll be catching glimpses of today. This episode owes a lot to some people who've written about this topic, as well as people who've corresponded with me about their research and about resources they have. I'll be listing some credits at the end, of course, running the risk that I will leave somebody out. But rather than interrupt the flow of things to sort of explain where I got stuff, I'll do all that at the end, sort of footnotes style. There's a lot here, so we should probably get started. So who was Morris K. Jessup? Well, Morris Ketchum Jessup was born in 1900 in Indiana. His family was, from all accounts, lower middle class, and he was smart, good with science, but maybe not the kind of guy you'd really want to get to know. Uh, one classmate of his at Rockville High School in Indiana wrote to Gray Barker in 1968, and it's from this letter that we have some good background on Jessup's family and also the way his peers perceived him. I can supply you with a few facts about Dr. Jessup, which you might find interesting. He was born just east of Rockville, Indiana, on a farm. His father's name was George Jessup, and his mother was a swain. He had one sister, Marjorie, a tiny, fragile blonde creature who broke every heart in Rockville High. So far as I know, she's still living. The family were what Charles Dickens would have called shabby genteel. Not rich, not poor. In school, Morris was a brain. He made excellent grades and was the pet of the teachers, who forecast a brilliant future for him. His one love was astronomy, and he, when he went to Ann Arbor, reports said that he would major in the subject. He was disgustingly snobbish, especially to the poorer, less brilliant members of the school body. To a semi-illiterate like myself, he was pure murder. Everybody loves nerdy science snobs. The Ann Arbor reference is, of course, to the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, which Jessup would attend during the 1920s, studying astronomy. While later books would refer to him as an eminent scientist or a professor, the University of Michigan itself clarified what Jessup did at his time there in response to some questions sent to them from Gray Barker in 1971. Morris K. Jessup at no time held an appointment at the level of instructor or higher at this university. Mr. Jessup did hold several subordinate positions in the Department of Astronomy at the University of Michigan. He supervised laboratory sections in undergraduate astronomy, and he was employed for a three-year period, 1927 to 1930, as observing assistant at the Lamont-Husey Observatory of the University of Michigan, Blomfontein, 
South Africa. Mr. Jessup did not complete or submit a dissertation in partial fulfillment of the requirements for the degree of Doctor of Philosophy at the University of Michigan. Jessup received the degree Bachelor of Science and Master of Science from the University of Michigan in February 1926 and November 1926, respectively. Mr. Jessup was observing assistant at the Lamont Husey Observatory of the University of Michigan, Blomfontein, South Africa, for the three-year period 1927 to 1930. Professor Richard A. Rossiter was responsible for the erection and operation of the Lamont Husey Telescope. Mr. Jessup was assigned observing duties with this instrument during the period mentioned. Mr. Jessup never conducted explorations in Mexico with sponsorship of the University of Michigan. So as you can see, while he was sometimes referred to as Dr. Morris K. Jessup, as in the letter about his high school days, he was not. So why didn't he finish? Well, according to a letter from a faculty member about Jessup, which was written to Gray Barker in 1979, Jessup's attitude might have had something to do with it. He seems to have had recurrent trouble understanding who was boss, since he repeatedly tried to have himself appointed head of the Lamont Husey Observatory while he was working as an assistant to Dr. Rossiter, and his trouble with the graduate school arose from an unwillingness to follow regulations. He was given to outbursts of temper that verged on the insane. He was regarded by both faculty and graduate students as more on than off, but not much. He doubtless would have been dismissed from the university if the administration at the time had been less tolerant than it was. He also dabbled in archaeology, going to digs and things in Mexico and other parts of uh, Mesoamerica, but not under the aegis of the University of Michigan, as some people would believe. During World War II, he took part in a government expedition to Brazil. I think this was under the authority of the Department of Agriculture. By the 1950s, he'd done a few different jobs and was working in sales. With his background in astronomy, he got interested in UFOs, corresponding with people in the field, including Gray Barker and some others. Within the space of a few years, beginning in 1955, he had written four UFO books, The Case for the UFO in 55, UFOs in the Bible, and the UFO Annual, both in 1956, and finally in 1957, The Expanding Case for the UFO. Now, we're just going to be looking at The Case for the UFO, not his other books in this episode. Um, I didn't find his other books that interesting, honestly. And to be fair, the big draw about Morris K. Jessup is this whole Philadelphia experiment thing that we're going to be getting to. But before we get into that, I wanted to give you a bit of an exposure, I guess, to the man himself is as part of the Faded Discs collection of, of UFO history, uh, UFO audio history on the Internet Archive that Wendy Connors originally um, collected and, and, and curated, there is a uh, brief two-minute clip of Morris Jessup talking about science. So you can imagine his voice instead of mine when we read some of his material. Certainly it's true that all through the 20th century, and perhaps slightly before the beginning of the 20th century, that science has been running ahead of the man on the street. And in the past... Uh, well, I say in the past 30 years, this gap has been widening uh, very seriously, and in the past 10 years, it's been widening at a very alarming rate. Of course, it's been said that Isaac Newton was the last human being who would ever know all the science of his time, and 
that was probably uh, true. But uh, I don't know hardly what can be done about it. It seems that once, if you uh, if you try to talk about slowing science up, uh, immediately everybody screams that you're impeding progress. And maybe they're right, but I think sometimes we're confusing change with progress and don't actually know that we aren't truly progressing. It's certainly true that science has uh, set up a vast framework of uh, the material or purely mechanical uh, phases of the world we live in, and as far as science has gone, it has pretty much uh, uh, proved its points and, uh, and consolidated its uh, gains. But uh, science is just as bigoted today and just as arrogant as the church was in the uh, dark and middle ages, and where the church uh, overlooked uh, what most of us consider to be reality, uh, science is in turn overlooking all of the, uh, nearly all of the spiritual values, and I think both of them have missed the boat. So in summary, science, not quite getting the job done. The case for the UFO examined the subject in a very serious way with lots of scientific talk, particularly about the forces and technology that might be powering UFOs, as well as the ways that such forces could be used to alleviate humanity's own energy concerns. Along with this, he discussed weather anomalies, including things falling from the sky, a la the works of Charles Fort and things like that. Along with those topics, Jessup used his interest in archaeology to discuss the connections between UFO ideas and ancient history, megaliths, etc., sort of the age-old and very time-worn question, how could they move such massive rocks without modern technology? They must have had levitation devices. So that's sort of pseudo-pre-ancient aliens type of stuff. Now, many websites... Many, many websites say that he talked about Einstein's unified field theory in the case for the UFO, but he did not, at least that I found when I read it. He did, however, talk about it in other articles and increasingly during 1955 in public lectures, going so far as to ask people to contact their government representatives to urge them to fund research into the unified field theory, as in this selection that was presented in Charles Berlitz and William L. Moore's seminal book on the entire topic, The Philadelphia Experiment. If the money, thought, time, and energy now being poured uselessly into the development of rocket propulsion were invested in a basic study of gravity, beginning perhaps with continued research into Dr. Einstein's unified field concepts, it is altogether likely that we could have effective and economical space travel, but at a small fraction of the costs we are now incurring within the next decade. These statements caught the attention of a man calling himself Carl M. Allen. At least, he's calling himself that at this point. It gets a little confusing. He writes to Jessup, who received the letter in January 1956. 
Your invocation to the public that they move en masse upon their representatives and have thusly enough pressure placed at the right and sufficient number of places where from a law demanding research into Dr. Albert Einstein's unified field theory may be enacted is not at all necessary. It may interest you to know that the good doctor was not so much influenced in his retraction of that worth by mathematics as he most assuredly was by humantics. His later computations, done strictly for his own edification and amusement upon cycles of human civilization and progress compared to the growth of man's general overall character, was enough to horrify him. Thus we are told today that the theory was incomplete. Just a note about these letters. They are written in, I don't know, is it the best way to say it? Stream of consciousness style? Sort of stream of consciousness style. The syntax is odd. The word choices are sometimes odd. The spelling is bad. And there are copies of them out there on the internet where people have fixed up some of the weirdness to make them more readable. But I thought that... uh, you would prefer or maybe enjoy sort of the unfiltered Carl Allen uh, during this experience. So we'll come back to the term humantics at some point, but the implication here is that something about the unified field theory is dangerous. Allen goes on to explain that Bertrand Russell found that mankind was not ready for this kind of knowledge and supposedly would not be ready for it until after World War III. So whenever that is. The Navy, however, the letter says, has been experimenting with such things and has produced levitation effects. This is the result of certain metals reacting to certain fields surrounding a current. Had Faraday concerned himself about the magnetic field surrounding an electric current, we today would not exist, or if we did, our present geopolitical situation would not have the very time-bombish ticking off toward destruction atmosphere that now exists. All right, all right, the result was complete invisibility of a ship, destroyer type, and all its crew while at sea, October 1943. The field was effective in an oblate spheroidal shape, extending 100 yards, more or less, due to lunar position and latitude, out from each beam of the ship. Any person within that sphere became vague in form, but he too observed those persons working aboard that ship as though they too were of the same state, yet were walking upon nothing. Any person without that sphere could see nothing save the clearly defined shape of the ship's hull in the water, providing, of course, that the person was just close enough to see yet, just barely outside of that field. So there it is. The beginning of something that is going to last for a very long time. If you can sort of read through or hear through the confusing way he presents it. A destroyer escort, or DE, type ship was made invisible. But something went wrong with the people inside the ship. What exactly happened to them? Half the officers and crew of that ship are at present mad as hatters. A few are even yet confined to certain areas where they may receive trained scientific aid when they either go blank or go blank and get stuck. Going blank is not at all an unpleasant experience to healthily curious sailors. However, it is when also they get stuck that they call it Hell Incorporated. The man thusly stricken cannot move of his own volition unless two or more of those who are within the field go and touch him quickly, else he freezes. If a man freezes, his position must be marked out carefully, and then the field is cut off. Everyone but that frozen man is able to move. To appreciate apparent solidity again, 
Then, the newest member of the crew must approach the spot where he will find the frozen man's face or bare skin that is not covered by usual uniform clothing. Sometimes it takes only an hour or so, sometimes all night and all day long, and worse, it once took six months to get the man unfrozen. This deep freeze was not psychological. It is the result of a hyperfield that is set up within the field of the body while the scorch field is turned on, and this at length or upon an old hand. A highly complicated piece of equipment had to be constructed in order to unfreeze those who became true froze or deep freeze subjects. Usually a deep freeze man goes mad. Stark, raving, gibbering, running mad if his freeze is far more than a day in our time. Well, that sounds awful. Alan says that the first time they tried to unfreeze someone, it took six months and cost five million dollars. And, he explains to Jessup, one should keep their eyes open if they're ever in the area where this took place. If around or near the Philadelphia Navy Yard you see a group of sailors in the act of putting their hands upon a fellow or upon thin air, observe the digits and appendages of the stricken man. If they seem to waver as though within a heat mirage, go quickly and put your hands upon him. For that man is the very most desperate of men in the world. Not one of those men ever want at all to become again invisible. I do not think that much more need to be said as to why man is not ready for force field work, eh? You will hear phrases from these men such as caught in the flow or the push or stuck in the green or stuck in molasses or I was going fast. These refer to some of the decade later after effects of force field work. Caught in the flow describes exactly the stuck in molasses sensation of a man going into a deep freeze or plain freeze, either of the two. Caught in the push can either refer to that which a man feels briefly when he is either about to inadvertently go blank, i.e. become invisible, or about to get stuck in a deep freeze or plain freeze. As confusing as all of that is, one of the things I love about it is the invented slang of this story, the the deep freeze, the getting stuck, the molasses. It's incredible. Now, out of the people who took part in this experiment, uh, Alan says in his letter that not many of those people are left. And as for those who are, well, it's not great. Most went insane. One tried walking through his quarters wall in sight of his wife and child and two other crew members was never seen again. Two went into the flame, i.e. they froze and caught fire while carrying common small boat compasses. One man carried the compass and caught fire. The other came for the laying on of hands as he was nearest, but he too took fire. They burned for 18 days. The faith in hand laying died when this happened, and men's minds went by the scores. The experiment was a complete success. The men were complete failures. As confusing and weird as these letters are, that last line is marvelous. The experiment was a complete success. The men were complete failures. So this is all very interesting. But what about evidence? Well, there was a newspaper story, supposedly. Check Philadelphia papers for a tiny one paragraph, upper half of sheet, inside the paper, near the rear third of the paper, 1944 to 46, in spring or fall or winter, not summer, of an item describing the sailors' actions after their initial voyage. They raided a local to the Navy Yard gin mill or beer joint and caused such shock and paralysis of the waitresses that little comprehensible could be gotten from them, save that paragraph and the writer of it does not believe it and says, I only wrote what I heard and them dames is daffy, so all I get is hide it bedtime story. 
Them dames is daffy. That's uh, that's great. So I'm convinced. Now, this newspaper story, there's no citation of what paper or anything. Um, a story, a photocopy of a story matching this with no name of the paper, no author, no date, no anything, did emerge when Berlitz and Moore were working on their Philadelphia experiment story. It is a highly suspect copy of a newspaper article, and it is two things. One, it is really suspect enough that you can't really take it too seriously as evidence. And the other thing it is, is too complex and confusing a story to get sidetracked with here. So just suffice to say that Alan's reference to a vague newspaper story was sort of addressed later on, but nobody can agree about whether or not it's a real newspaper story. In closing the letter, he tells Jessup to check the records of the SS Andrew Furuseth and gives the names of some crew members on board at the time. Kind of. As far as I know, no one has been able to find Splicey Price, um, and there are some other people who are just sort of known as nicknames or just a last name. The letter is signed, I love this, very disrespectfully yours, Carl M. Allen. P.S. will help more if you see where I can. Allen included his sailor number from the Merchant Marine, which confirmed actually that Allen was a crew member of this SS Furuseth at the time. We'll be hearing much more about the Furuseth as we go on. I should also note that somewhat confusingly, at the head of the letter, the return address information was Carlos Miguel Allende, spelled A-L-L-E-N-D-A, not D-E, as would later be. But then at the bottom, as I said, it was signed Carl M. Allen. So this person, whoever's writing these letters, is using two different names, one at the top of the letter, one at the bottom. It gets a little more confusing than that even. This was followed up by a second letter sent within a few days of the first. Allen suggests that Jessup, quote, contact Rear Admiral Rawson Bennett for verification info herein, Navy Chief of Research. He may offer you a job ultimately. Now, according to the Naval History and Heritage Command website, and that's an actual part of the Navy, so I'm not just, I didn't go to a Philadelphia experiment website for this. I went to the Navy. In 1955, December of 1955, Bennett was promoted to Rear Admiral from Captain and was appointed Chief of Naval Research. He took office, uh, started that job on January 3rd, 1956. In January of 59, he was reappointed Chief of Naval Research for a second term and did that until he retired in February of 1961. Now, there's been some question as to how widely Bennett getting that job and having that job was known and how Carl Allen would have known this, considering that he sent letters to Jessup they're, they're postmarked within days of Bennett taking the job. In their book on the Philadelphia Experiment, Burlitz and Moore go into more detail on attempts to track down the reality or unreality of the people named in these letters. Um, and they do go into this question of, you know, might Carl Allen have had some connections high up? Otherwise, how might he have known? The letters were postmarked in somewhere in Texas. I can't remember quite where. Uh, but you know, it wasn't something that was even reported in major papers, much less small local papers that would have been around where Carl Allen was writing to Jessup from. I urge you to to look at uh, look at that book, the Philadelphia Experiment book, for further information on that. 
So with his little bit of career advice out of the way, Alan launches into his purpose for writing. One, the Navy did not know that the men could become invisible while not upon the ship and under the field's influence. Two, the Navy did not know that there would be men die from odd effects of hyperfield within or upon field. Three, further, they even yet do not know why this happened and are not even sure that the F within F is the reason for sure at all. In short, the atomic bomb didn't kill the experimenters, thus the experiments went on. But eventually, one or two were accidentally killed, but the cause was known as to why they died. Myself, I feel that something pertaining to the small boat compass triggered off the flames. I have no proof, but neither does the Navy. 4. Worse, and not mentioned when one or two of the men visible within the field to all the others just walked into nothingness and nothing could be felt of them either when the field was turned off or on. They were just gone. Then, more fears were amassed. 5. Worse yet, when an apparently visible and new man just walks seemingly through the wall of his house, the surrounding area searched by all men and thoroughly scrutinized and with and under an installed portable field generator, and nothing ever found of him. So many, many fears were by then in effect that the sum total of them could not ever be again faced by any of those men or by the men working at and upon the experiments. So more horror about the experiment and the effects of it. I do love the atomic bomb didn't kill the experimenters, thus the experiments went online. In amongst all of this weirdness and confusion and bad grammar and you can't tell from your end, but awful spelling, amongst all that, there are some really nice turns of phrase. Next, Alan gets into another aspect of the experiment, one that will be with us for a very long time. I wish to mention that somehow also, the experimental ship disappeared from its Philadelphia dock and only a very few minutes later appeared at its other dock in the Norfolk Newport News Portsmouth area. This was distinctly and clearly identified as being that place, but the ship then again disappeared and went back to its Philadelphia dock in only a very few minutes or less. This was also noted in the newspapers, but I forget which paper I read it in or when it happened. Probably late in the experiments. May have been in 1946 after experiments were discontinued. I cannot say for sure. The teleporting ship. The one thing that anyone who's heard about any aspect of the Philadelphia experiment, that's what they know about, right? The ship that disappeared from the Philadelphia Naval Yard, reappeared down in Virginia, then went back. And it's kind of nice to see that first sort of mention of it in print, even if we don't have a name of the ship yet. Alan explains that the Navy found all of this, this entire thing, a bad idea due to the, in his words, morale blasting effects. And it was, quote, deemed as impossible, impractical, and too horrible, end quote. There were some issues with people not using proper caution in the experiment, especially metal things that messed stuff up. As we're going to hear, there's a, um, sort of an issue with a compass that was a problem, and also the hobnailed boots that the people on the ship wore had an influence on these generators that messed up the unified field and you know melted people and set them on fire for 18 days and things like that. The next item in the sort of correspondence between Jessup and Allen slash Ayende is a postcard, a typewritten postcard sent from Jessup to Carl slash Carlos. 
and it was dated January 13th, 1956. Dear Mr. Allende, your most remarkable letters, postmarked Gainesville, Texas, January 5th, was forwarded to me here today. This is without doubt the most remarkable report that I have had out of the hundreds of letters from readers of my book. I am retyping it so that copies can be studied by my technical associates and would like all the information I can get from you about more details, especially names and addresses of witnesses. This material is of the greatest importance. Please write me at once as to your address during the next two months. If you are in Texas, I may want to stop and see you when I am en route to Mexico. I will reply more fully when we have studied your report. Believe me, it is important and we must know more about this phenomenon. Thanks again. Very truly yours, M.K. Jessup. Jessup sounds seriously interested here, but there's doubt in some circles about whether the postcard was legitimate. David Halperin, in his series of 2011 blog posts on various aspects of the Jessup story, casts some doubt on the postcard. Now, where we get the postcard is a photocopy which Carlos Allende, Carl Allen, had given to Gray Barker and it was in Barker's file, files, which is where Halperin read it. Halperin isn't sure why Jessup would choose a postcard instead of a letter. He's thought that sounded a bit odd based on postage rates and how much typewritten text he crammed into this thing. Also, Jessup mentions the associates that he was going to share this information with. And Halperin says that these associates aren't discussed anywhere else. And and I agree. I've I've been reading a lot of Jessup stuff and Jessup-related stuff the last few weeks. And I, I don't know who these associates would have been unless it's Gray Barker, with whom Jessup was corresponding quite a bit. However, Halperin notes Jessup didn't mention anything about the postcard in any of his correspondence with Gray Barker, didn't give any impression that this correspondence with Carl Allen slash Carlos Allende was anything really that significant. So, as with the supposed Philadelphia newspaper article, we may need to put this postcard into the maybe maybe not pile. So there's one final letter from Alan slash Allende to Jessup, and it does have the name at the header of the top be Carlos Allende and the name sort of at the bottom below the sign off as being Carl Allen. And it's a doozy. Allende basically offers to give Jessup more information. Unfortunately, that information is locked up in his mind. Luckily, he has a solution. I can be of some positive help to you and myself, but to do so would require a hypnotist, sodium pentothal, a tape recorder, and an excellent typist secretary in order to produce material of real value to you. As you know, one who is hypnotized cannot lie, and one who is both hypnotized and given truth serum, as it is colloquially known, could not possibly lie at all. To boot, my memory would thus be enabled to remember things in such great detail, things that my present consciousness cannot recall at all, or only barely and uncertainly, that it would be of far greater benefit to use hypnosis. I could thus be enabled to not only recall complete names, but also addresses and telephone numbers, and perhaps the very important numbers of those sailors with whom I sailed with them, or even came into contact with. I could, too, being something of a dialectician, be able to thusly talk exactly as those witnesses talked and imitate or illustrate their mannerisms and habits of thought. Thus your psychologists can figure in advance the surefire of method of dealing most successfully with these. 
I could not do this with someone with whom I have not observed at length, and these men I lived with for about six months, so you are bound to get good to excellent results. The mind does not ever forget. Not really, as you know. I can remember everything if you just hypnotize me and use truth drugs. That is so weird. So, so weird. The letter goes on to explain that he thinks he can be of help to Jessup. They might disagree on a number of things, he says, but he can produce material, quote, of real value to you as long as he has those drugs and a hypnotist and a talented typist to write the whole thing down. So he then next goes into some of the effects and some of the consequences of things that happened during the experiment. There's some repetition here. I'm not giving you nearly the full dose of these letters. There's links in the show notes if you want to read the whole things and get the entire experience sort of in your face firsthand. I believe that further experiments would naturally have produced controlled transport of great tonnages at ultra-fast speeds to a desired point the instant it is desired through usage of an area covered by, one, those cargoes, and two, that field that could cause those goods, ships or ship, parts, men were transported as well, to go to another point. Accidentally, and to the embarrassed perplexity of the Navy, this has already happened to a whole ship, crew and all. I read of this and the off-base AWOL activities of the crewmen who were at the time invisible in a Philadelphia newspaper. Under narco-hypnosis, I can be enabled to divulge the name, date, and section and page number of that paper and the other one. Man, this guy really wants to be hypnotized, doesn't he? It's almost a little weird. He closes the letter with sort of a connection or a way to connect what happened in that shipyard in Philadelphia to Jessup's actual field of interest, which is UFOs. I mean, the energy stuff is, of course, Jessup's in Jessup's wheelhouse, but he finally gets around to connecting these things to UFOs. I'm a stargazer, Mr. Jessup. I make no bones about this, and the fact that I feel that if handled properly, i.e. presented to people in science in the proper psychologically effective manner, I feel sure that man will go where he now dreams of being, to the stars via the form of transport that the Navy accidentally stumbled upon to their embarrassment when their experimental ship took off and popped up a minute or so later on several hundred sea travel trip miles away at another of its berths in the Chesapeake Bay area. I read of this in another newspaper, and only by hypnosis could any man remember all the details of which paper, date of occurrence, and etc. You see? Eh? Perhaps already, the Navy has used this accident of transport to build your UFOs. It is a logical advance from any standpoint. What do you think? Very respectfully, Carl Allen. Just a little behind-the-scenes info. The phrase, several hundred sea travel trip miles, um tripped me up quite a number of times during the recording of this. This is the last letter from Alan slash Ande to Jessup. And when we come back, we're going to look at another group of people, or were they, who had some comments on Jessup's book, The Case for the UFO. <laughs> ¶¶ 
We'll be back in a week fielding questions and comments about this episode. I think since this is the first part of a multi-part extravaganza, um, I reserve the right to save questions that might end up being spoilery until later segments. Something will happen next week, though. So don't worry. And do send those questions in via social media email. Um, That's social media at thesaucerlife at gmail.com and on social media at Saucer Life or the Saucer Life podcast on Facebook. Send in your questions. They will be gotten to eventually in the appropriate place. And then on the next episode, what's the deal with Carlos Allende or Carl Allen or whoever he is, if he's anybody? And according to some people, he's someone very different from who we might think he is. Well, really just one person thinks this in their book, and they in their book are weird but sweet, and it's going to be fun. And we'll also be getting a little bit more into the development of the Philadelphia Experiment mythos itself. I'm not sure exactly how many parts this is going to be. I had planned on three, but I had also planned on dealing with all the Carlos Allende stuff on this episode about Morris K. Jessup, and that's not going to happen. So we'll see where this goes. It's kind of an adventure for all of us. You can support the show via the link in our show notes to the Chizo Media Patreon or patreon.com slash chizomedia or chizomedia.com if you like. Any way to get there. Or Google Saucer Life Patreon. You'll find it somewhere. Over there, we've got early episodes of the Saucer Life and Great Lakes lore with extended content about each episode. We've got bonus episodes every month, other bonus content, watch-alongs, research blog posts all kinds of stuff and thank you to those who've been supporting us there for the last couple months we've been doing that we've been having a great time over there i mentioned the email and social media uh, labels above labels handles above but if you want to contact us by post you can do so at chizo media p.o box 68 grand blank michigan 48480 we always find interesting things in the mail when we go And now let's get back to Morris K. Jessup via the Vero Corporation of Garland, Texas. Kind of. It's weird. I'm going to be saying that a lot about this episode. Kind of. It's weird. So the next episode in this saga is one that is probably the most well-known of all of the Morris K. Jessup-related things, and that is the arrival of a paperback copy of the case for the UFO into the hands of naval technology officials and naval research officials, and this copy was annotated. And to sort of summarize what happened here, I'm using the account that was printed in Moore and Berlitz's Philadelphia Experiment Project Invisibility book that came out in 1979. We'll be looking at this book more thoroughly next time on the show, but this is the clearest summary I was able to find, so I am sort of summarizing their summary. So basically, in the middle of the summer of 1955, July or August, Months before Jessup received letters from Carl Allen slash Carlos Allende, a manila envelope 
was sent to Admiral Firth, who was at that time chief of the Office of Naval Research. And it was included in the mail of a guy named Major Daryl Ritter, who was part of an aeronautical project. The return address or postmark on the envelope was Seminole, Texas. And across the envelope were written the words, Happy Easter in ink, which is weird because, you know, the thing arrived in July or August. So inside is a paperback copy of the case for the UFO, but it was, as I said, annotated by three supposedly different Well, not supposedly. Let's just – I'll say it like this. It was annotated in three different ink colors with slightly different handwritings. And they were commenting on Jessup's ideas. They were commenting on other aspects of UFO phenomenon. They were saying things that in some cases made no sense. And they also referred to some elements of things that would be present in the letters that Allende sent to Jessup. To sort of summarize this story a little bit more, there's two naval guys, Ritter and Hoover. They're interested in this. They call Jessup up to Washington to take a look at this book, and he recognizes one of the hands that wrote the text or wrote the annotations as being that of Carl Allen slash Carlos Allende. He had gotten the letters by the time he was invited up to take a look at this thing. So the other thing that happens sort of subsequent to this is that the Office of Naval Research or people within the Office of Naval Research, it's unclear. Was this a Navy operation or was this something undertaken by people with an interest in the UFO subject who worked in the Office of Naval Research? In any case, there is a new version of this book printed by the Vero Corporation of Garland, Texas. And what they did was basically retypeset the entire book to include the different colored annotations. And that seems like a big job in an age of typewriters and stencils and offset printing and or lithograph printing or some kind of printing that isn't what I send to my printer when I have to print things. And so this is a a very limited edition of these things. So my focus here in discussing this is not to go into all the details of the timelines and the who's and the what's and was responsible for this. Rather, I want to focus on the content. And I've got to acknowledge that this content is confusing in an audio format. I did the best I could with presenting something that Jessup wrote and then commentary with slightly different, I don't even want to dignify them with the term characterizations for the different handwriting types. There was, you know, a Mr. A, a Mr. B, and a figure named Jemmy who uh, j-e-m-i that others referred to they made references to gypsies to possibly being gypsies and yes i that's the term they use that is not of course the term we would use today for the roma people but you know it's it's weird and that the gypsy reference would color things down the road as we're going to talk about in later installments so 
This is a very rare book, this Vero edition. Uh, Vero, by the way, was not a printing company, as is sometimes mentioned in UFO literature, including Jim Mosley's memoir of his time in the saucer, li- saucer in the saucer life. Actually, um, it, it's kind of an oversight. Uh, Vero Corporation did a lot of defense contracting. They were a manufacturer of some fairly highly technical things, but. Also had some people there who were into UFO stuff. So like a lot of things, there's a big question of the degree to which an organization is officially organizationally interested in the topic and what might be, on the other hand, a handful of people who are interested in the topic and kind of use company resources to you know, do some of these things. So that's a big question. So the Vero edition, very rare. But years afterward, Gray Barker took this and found a way to semi-affordably reproduce it, reprint it, and offer it for sale. And a digitized reproduction of Gray Barker's reproduction of the Vero manuscript is what I am operating from. I had access to scans of a more original versions, but I'm not good at reading handwriting sometimes. That's why areas of history I deal with generally are from time periods after the invention of the printing press and typewriters and things like that, which I find a little bit easier. So as we go through parts of this annotated Vero edition, which was the Gray Barker reprint of things like that, like I said, I've got to be honest, to cover the entire book and all of the annotations would be very tedious in this format, even more tedious than what you are going to hear. There's a link to the copy that I used that's housed on the Internet Archive, and I put that link in the show notes. So let's go through this. And let me be clear, my focus is on the content, not um, sort of the picayune minuscule details. Remember, this show, not just this episode, is designed to be an on-ramp to these topics. I want you to go and explore further and in as much detail as your heart can stand. Um, But we're not going to get into every single detail that we possibly could because we would be here forever. But one thing I do want to point out is that when Barker marketed his copy of the Vero edition of The Case for the UFO, he did so in an extremely gray barkery way notice this envelope contains an ad on controversial ufo information contains an ad offering the annotated edition of the case for the ufo for sale if you feel you do not wish to know this information or have this information in your possession destroy this envelope immediately or return to sender that's great now as you might know barker's job one of his jobs was to book films in cinemas around West Virginia. And back in the 1950s and 1960s, you know, really sort of bad horror movies sometimes would have disclaimers on them like, you know, anybody who dies during a fright during the screening of, you know, blood sacrifice of the goat virgin or whatever would be, you know, compensated with a free coffin or Nurses will be on hand to assist those who 
are having trouble or if you are of a nervous disposition, we urge you not to watch this film. And I, I have to think that some of that kind of shock marketing made its way into some of Barker's promotional materials. Now, if you were brave enough to open the envelope, this is how it began. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but this is how it began. Dear friend, I don't pretend to know you personally. That is impossible the way we do business by mail. But the fact that you opened this envelope tells me something about your personal character. You are seriously interested in the UFO mystery and you are not paranoid or crazy. Your friends and neighbors may think you're a bit off because of your sincere interest in the subject, but you are the type of person who pleasantly laughs this off and goes right ahead with your UFO studies. You are not afraid of the implications that the flying saucer mystery might bring. I know something else about you. You're very selective in the type of UFO literature you purchase or read. You have read many of the more excellent books in this field. I don't claim to have occult powers. In fact, I'm about as psychic as a bedpost. The staff and I simply went through our customer cards and pulled names of people who had purchased very selectively during the past three years. Since you did not destroy the outer envelope, I believe that you are courageous enough to participate with me in a project involving a subject that has long been too hush-hush and should be brought out into the open. This letter not only involves the unfortunate suicide of Dr. M.K. Jessup in 1959, indeed, it involves much more, the strange events which led up to his taking his own life. This is just a brilliantly manipulative appeal to vanity, and I love it. And I'm not going to pretend I'm better than anybody else. I totally would have fallen for this as a younger person. Heck, I'd probably fall for it now. So the Vero edition, I have uh, sort of vamped long enough trying to avoid getting into this very confusing thing. I did my best. Um, please believe that. So we begin with the foreword. And Jessup opens his book and is responded to in the margins by the person wielding the blue pen. The subject of UFOs in its present stage is like astronomy in that it is a purely observational science, not an experimental one. Necessarily, therefore, it must be based on observation and not on experiment. Observation in this case consists of everything which can be found to have bearing on the subject. There are thousands of references to it in ancient literature, but the authors did not know that their references had any bearing, for the subject did not then exist. The writers were recording such things as met their senses solely through an honest effort to report inexplicable observational data. Hoping in those days that something would come of it. Nowadays, science is afraid that something will come of it. It will, too. In 1956 or 57, the Air Force will have ships like these in appearance and will feel safe to announce that human eyes have seen saucers from outer space, but not to be worried because we, too, have these ships. Oh, brother, what a farce. Ours will be jet-propelled. Now, if you just listened to that and wondered what in the name of heck you were listening to, hey, now you know what I've been dealing with over the last month or so. So that's how these things sort of go. Jessup has written something, and then in the margins, one of these figures, blue, green, purple, would respond with that. And that one made sense. Oh, the Air Force is going to have ships of their own. Don't worry. Some of them make less sense, such as this one. Reliable people have been seeing the phenomenon known as flying saucers for a thousand years and more. There are good reports as far back as 1500 BC and before. 
Thousands of people have seen some kind of navigable contraptions in the sky, and some have sworn it under oath. In a day when oaths are just as good as money in hand, for if incorrect, your neck suffered the miracle from the church as a knife from the outraged who took your oath. Sure, Mr. Blue Ink Man, that's just fine. I'm not going to argue with you. Next, we have another Blue Inked response to a Jessup comment that introduces a concept that will run throughout these annotations. I cannot agree with any astronomer who insists that all of these things are mirages, planets, clouds, or illusions. The majority of the people are articulate enough to tell their stories and sincere enough to make depositions before notaries public. Even scientists concede that these folks saw something. I see nothing particularly odd in strange descriptions of phenomena the like of which has no earthly counterpart or for which we have no frame of reference. If he does not, then he knows the LMs. Ah, the LMs. A strange group of beings from somewhere else. Now, sometimes the comments and commentary that was written in the Vero edition aren't necessarily connected to something that Morris has written. It's not a direct response. And this next segment, or not segment, but selection, again from our commentator with the blue pen, is addressing the question of whether or not Jessup will be able to succeed in his goal of finding information about the UFOs. If he does succeed in such evaluation, nobody cares enough to bother believing him, for that would require the effort of courage, and the guy are such cowards and conformists. Even if they believed, nobody would dare say so, for that would require action, and they dare not act in behalf of a belief that interferes with usual living. As far as I can tell, the Gaiar are like us, just normal humans. So this is sort of a, I don't know, Twilight Zone-ish is the way to say it, but this sort of Twilight Zone-ish attitude of even if you come up with the answer and tell people, Nobody is going to care. You don't have the capacity to understand. You don't have the capacity to confront anything that doesn't conform to what you already do that makes your life more inconvenient. Next, we're going to hear from the Green Ink writer or commenter who I believe is Jemmy, the figure known as Jemmy. There is an A, a B, and a Jemmy, and I've got it straight and I may not. A is the blue ink, B is the purple ink, green is Jemmy. That's just the impression I got from reading it. And this connects things a little bit to some of the other materials in the Allende letters. Note, anyone reading this book would have to know that electron quantums within molecular structures are similar in scope of field as planets' orbits. They would have to know that. Electrons and metal go across what in planetary systems would be billions of miles, leaving three a gravitational field, dead spot, or node, or vortice, or neutral, as this one thing is variously caused. Realizing this, as Dr. Albert Einstein did, it shows clearly how solids may become energy or dissolute, and how then they may pass easily, out of visual scope, instantly. This is merely one clue gleamed from Einstein's theory of a unified magnetic field through all substances and throughout whole intergalactic universe. U.S. experiments 1943 on one part of it proved plenty. 
So we've got Einstein's unified field theory, and we've got a reference to that 1943 experiment. So we've got the pieces falling into place. And again, the timeline is weird. This is before Jessup started receiving those letters, but clearly there is uh, there's overlap. It's not too surprising why he thought there might be a connection or indeed a complete sort of similarity of the person who wrote the annotations on this book and the person who sent him the letters. We also have levitation style stuff going on here. And there was an Allen slash Allende letter sent to Jessup before the ones we talked about that is not been made public that discussed levitation things more so than some of the invisibility things in the later letters. It would be great if somebody could unearth that letter at some point, but levitation things do make an appearance here. I am not averse to saying that a force field can make a man to fly, for I have seen it done, and I know the cause of this flight, and am not disturbed. Paris Exhibition, 1951. Scientists from Paris University demonstrated this. An AP photo was sent to U.S. showing this action. U.S. Navy's force field experiments, 1943, October, produced invisibility of crew and ship. Fearsome results, so terrifying as to fortunately halt further research. So there's blue and green pen people discussing the levitation and also going back to those experiments. And the levitation and the force field ideas are closely interlinked. It's force fields that are causing the levitation, but also force fields that are influencing the invisibility. The science is maybe a little too weird to actually be comprehensible. But one thing is for sure, and that is that Morris K. Jessup is on the right track. Here we get some input for the first time on this show from the being wielding the purple pen. It is almost an inseparable corollary to our thesis that we admit to an unfathomable antiquity for mankind, or at least intelligence upon the earth and its vicinity. This conclusion is made unavoidable by the antiquity of records of UFOs and wingless flight. It is apparent in the innumerable megalithic works of stone which involve masses too huge to be moved by means other than levitation, and which have been standing for ages before any written record now available. The man is close. Too close. We're getting awfully close to Morris K. Jessup knew too much about flying saucers territory here, but we're starting to see why the Air Force and or no, sorry, the Navy rather, and Jessup might have been interested in these annotations because these people who are writing or this person pretending to be people who are writing seem to have some kind of information. But as you can hear from listening to this, if you think about this stuff too deeply, it makes about as much sense as the Alan Allende letters, which is not too much. We get other parallels and crossovers between these annotations and those letters, such as this summary of why Einstein ditched the unified field theory in 1927 from the Green Writer. Einstein's theory of unified field throughout all space and atmosphere was so well proven that upon realizing man's misanthropic emotionality, he withdrew it. 1927. And we also get some more explicit tie-ins with the UFO mystery. 
As a means, then, of assuring that we do not knowingly overlook any possible contributory evidence in the case for the UFOs, I ask you to keep those storms and cloud formations in mind and, if possible, to fit them into the basis of any comprehensive conclusions which you may eventually draw. I believe that space structures of 5 to 20 miles in diameter are sufficiently large to produce such storms, and there may be elements of purposefulness in so doing, if only for camouflage or concealment. <laughs> the LM Great Ark is bigger. The Great Ark? The LMs? One of these non-human intelligences? Is this a spaceship bigger than any that Jessup can conceive of? It seems likely. And this idea of a ship created by these various creatures and then a war that took place between them makes up the substance of a lot of the commentary in this annotated edition of Case for the UFO. But where do the UFO people come from? Jessup has some ideas about that, and the blue pen writer thinks these ideas are interesting. It is no longer necessary to explain them as visitors from Mars, Venus, or Alpha Centauri. They are a part of our own immediate family, a part of the Earth-Moon binary planet system. They didn't have to come all those millions of miles from anywhere. They have been here for thousands of years. Whether we belong to them by possession, like cattle, or whether we belong to each other by common origin and association is an interesting problem, and one which may soon be settled if we keep our heads. He knows something. But how does he know? So LMs, SMs, not from outer space, maybe from somewhere else. There's also some indications that there might be crashed craft. And Jessup talks about this. And then the green pen writer has some commentary about that as well. We believe that the Russians may have captured one or more. We think that some new scientific principles are with us, perhaps even now operating within our military laboratories, and may burst forth at any moment, and that as a race, we may be on the verge of something akin to what the modern atomic scientist calls a quantum explosion. No other set of conclusions will serve as a common denominator for all observable facts. Hmm, the possibility of the Ruskies have found an old dead ship is not without the realm of probability. His admittance to other forms of humanoid life is near revelatory to what I surmise. He is being led by his shortwave telepathic nose, so to speak, to see these things. He says we, and that could imply anything from one friendly LM to a fellow scientist or his wife or some member of U.S. government. If what I now surmise is true, then the LMs are in trouble or the SMs wish to war upon the LMs and are using this man telepathically to get help. Whether this consideration is of import to him only remains to be seen. If it isn't, then, he will be left out on an emotional limb trying to say, see, I'm right, they are wrong, and will forget what is important here. There's another green pen selection that is very much like what was in one of the letters Jessup received, only with a slightly different focus. Had Faraday concerned himself with the magnetic field surrounding his electrical current, man today would already have reached the outermost parts of our galaxy. Not exactly the same as the Faraday reference in, I think, the first letter that Jessup received, but close enough that it's close. And finally, from this annotated edition of the case for the UFO, is another reference to that great arc. The Great Ark, 
to have seen the great ark would humble or terrify any human. I wish even so that I could have seen it. The greatest structure ever built by humanoids or all time. Sounds pretty nifty, doesn't it? Now, that idea of the Ark or these craft is going to come back to us later in this series. But for now, I think that's a good presentation, or at least as good as I'm able to give you in the time allotted and the mental space I have, a good example of what Jessup's book was like and what the annotations were like. And I don't know, they're interesting, but... It seems a little too wacky for the Navy to have been really, really interested at a high institutional level. Again, like I said earlier, I, I suspect there's some element of there were people in this office who found this personally interesting rather than the Naval Research Office is needing to find out about this LM ARC ship somewhere. At this point, we're going to leave the Vero edition Carlos Allende, Carl M. Allen to the side. We're not going to talk about him anymore because we're going to finish up this episode with a look at where Jessup went next and where all of that ended up. While this controversy or I don't even know if that's the best word, while all of this stuff around the Vero edition and the letters and everything was circulating, Jessup was writing books still lecturing, still being out there on the UFO circuit. And he found that the sales of his books were steadily declining every time he released a book. Correspondence between Jessup and Barker, you know, both have them sort of lamenting the fact that making a living writing UFO books is simply not a viable option. And so Jessup is feeling some pressure on that end of things as well. He's also getting more deeply involved in psychic phenomenon and having an interest in psychic phenomenon. And a lot of this doesn't come out until after his death, which we will get to in a second. But he was in close contact with Lane Mead of the Borderland Science Research Associates about ways to sort of integrate the scientific and technological realm of the UFOs with the more ethereal, psychic, mind-based and consciousness-based ideas that the BSRA was promoting. So Jessup still had the scientific bent, but he was moving more toward a psychic connection to these things near the end of his life. In 1958, Jessup's wife left him. This was his second wife. He travels to New York City, and as we're going to see, some of his friends thought he wasn't doing too well. He goes back to Florida, where he was living, and he was involved in a car accident, which left him in a lot of pain and didn't do much to help his mood or psychological state that his friends had noticed before. Then... In April, April 29th, 1955, his car was found along a roadside and Jessup was dead inside. A hose had been run from the exhaust pipe. It was, a, ruled, it was ruled a suicide from carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, and it's very sad. But as is the way that happens in a lot of UFO cases, this 
finding of suicide would be picked apart and doubted and turned into a conspiratorial type extravaganza in some ways. And that isn't to say that there weren't some inconsistencies with the suicide, particularly the way that the autopsy was handled or the fact that an autopsy was not done, despite the law sort of specifying that under those circumstances, one should have been done. There's claims that the person who identified the body might not have really known too much what Jessup looked like. Jessup's wife refused to identify the body, saying that it wasn't him um, and that if it was him, he hadn't committed suicide. That's what UFO books reported, she said. So it's it's difficult. But there is sort of an afterlife to the Jessup story. He um, probably gets more attention after he dies than he did before he died, which is always kind of sad. So one of the interesting things about Jessup post-death is that uh, according to Jim Mosley in his memoir, Shockingly Close to the Truth, Jessup, because of this increased interest in psychic phenomenon and things like that, had sort of written a letter to Long John Nebel, the radio talk show host, and who did a lot of UFO stuff and said that that after he died, he would like to have a seance on the radio show where he communicates from beyond the grave to Long John's listeners. And Long John was kind of interested in it until Jessup's widow threatened to sue, according to Mosley. So that's sort of where that went. And there's another sort of thing that comes out of this. In 1962, a few years after his death, Riley Crabb of the, which is a great name, of the Borderland Science Research Associates issues a publication that is um, sort of a collection of the Allende letters and writings about Jessup and Jessup's suicide and what might have happened. And this is one of the first places where the Allende letters and the Vero edition and those things get a lot of public attention. Uh, this is how in the ad copy, this publication, M.K. Jessup and the Allende letters was pitched. Have you heard of the LMs and the SMs, two races who occupy space between the Earth and the Moon? Well, M.K. Jessup did. Three gypsies read his book, The Case for the UFO, and made marginal notes indicating they knew of these two space races. They also suspected that Jessup had cracked the secret in his UFO research. So in these pages, you have a first attempt to assemble some of the pieces of the mystery surrounding Jessup's suicide. We have included his correspondence with the late director of BSRA, Mead Lane, the introduction to the special Vero edition of Case for the UFO, and copies of Gypsy Allende's startling letters to Mr. Jessup three years before his passing. One of the things that Crabb goes into in this book is the possibility that there might be a seance at some point between a group of interested people and the spirit of Jessup from beyond the veil. And that's an idea we're going to come back to in a little bit. But he also, in this book, goes into the possibility of something besides what might strictly be a standard suicide being the cause of Jessup's death. And this ties into his growing interest in those psychic phenomenon that we've talked about. 
Most of the saucer magazines crossing my desk have had some word of regret about the passing of M.K. Jessup, one of the foremost of flying saucer researchers. The few who expect to see a man in black around every corner suspect that Jessup's apparent suicide may have been murder. The indications seem to be that he did take his own life by carbon monoxide poisoning from the exhaust gas of his own car. So Crab is setting up the evidence as we know it. There was paraphernalia on the scene. The body died of carbon monoxide poisoning, apparently. But something might not be right about this. Crab visited with a woman named Mrs. Ruth Helfand, who knew Jessup and had been a close friend of his from years when both lived in Washington, D.C. Crab talked to her to try to get some insight into what might have been going on in Jessup's mind. He was a brilliant man, in her opinion, but moody and oversensitive to criticism. At that time, his first marriage had ended in separation. He took life too seriously, Mrs. Helfrand told me. About every two weeks, he would call me and my girlfriend and ask us to go to dinner with him. He needed cheering up, so we'd go out with him and get him to laugh and to forget himself for a while. So talking to Helfrand makes it sound like he was having some psychological issues. Was that the only thing going on? Crab also talked to another woman, who was a friend of Jessup, named Ella Baker. In her letter of July 1st, Miss Baker speaks of those who become innocent victims of suggestion, negative suggestion, when they enter into psychic groups. In her opinion, Jessup was one. Jessup's research was scientific and factual, she writes. But when he came to speak to our Detroit Flying Saucer group in August 1957, he told us he was going to do his own research into the psychic groups. Miss Baker says she warned him against this because studying is one thing, actually indulging in psychic methods is something else again. Shortly afterwards, I read where he had become active in a Washington, D.C. psychic group. The next time he came to Michigan on business, at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, he called me and asked me to come out and join him for dinner. I did, and was shocked to feel the change in his vibrations. They had taken on the icky feeling of those who dabble in psychicism, a sort of astral B.O., Maybe it's just me, but I find the phrase astral B.O. to be a bit too humorous and lighthearted to sort of fit into this story. But the implication here is that his dabbling in psychicism, as she puts it, may have affected his aura, his psyche, his, his inner self to a degree where suicide was something that was an option for him where it wouldn't have been if he hadn't dabbled in this sort of thing. The remainder of the document or the the publication is reprintings of those letters and some elements of the the Vero edition, the marked up um, annotated case for the UFO. A lot of the materials in this BSRA publication would be reprinted in a Gray Barker book that went through several printings or editions between the late 60s and the early 70s called The Strange Case of Dr. M.K. Jessup. Yes, doctor. This is largely, like I said, a collection of reprinted materials, some from the BSRA, a lot from the BSRA. And the amount of the book that is actually other stuff is probably why, instead of a copyright notice, there is a notice inside the front cover that says, no copyright claimed, because 
Barker can't really claim a copyright on other people's stuff. So all of this is mixed with various theories about what might have happened with Jessup. Some are Barker's and some also come from Saucer fans who have written into Barker with their own comments and concerns about the case. Now, as for Jessup, his suicide was a frame-up. Jessup fell victim to hypnotism. He was sent a tape recording that contained self-destruction suggestions. The tape employed hypnotic suggestions superimposed on music and mixed with white sound. No one can resist being hypnotized by sound waves. This is disguised hypnosis, and it is foolproof. The white sound produces subliminal conditioning, a conditioning of the subconscious, a stimulus which affects the brain below the threshold of conscious awareness. There are certain sound wavelengths that are not audible to the conscious hearing, but are heard by the subconscious. Do you realize that someone could simply call you on the phone and when you answer, you are given a dose of white sound that puts you into a trance before you could even hang up? Your subconscious would be given suicidal thoughts, and then you would go out and destroy yourself. Of course, first you would be told to write a letter to someone suggesting that you were about to commit suicide. This is what happened to Jessup. It's cold-blooded murder. No, I'm not pulling your leg, Mr. Barker, and it's not too fantastic to be true. The equipment costs about $200 and can be obtained from a clinical supply company in New Jersey. Well, it wouldn't be a 2022 episode of The Saucer Life if mind control experimentation didn't show up somewhere along the line. Honestly, this writer to Barker sounds like a guy who knows a whole lot about this sort of infrasound kind of mind manipulation and simply applies it to whatever situation he seems to be looking at. So as you can tell from that selection, there's a lot of speculation in this book in amongst the documentation about Jessup and his activities. But Barker, being Barker, freely acknowledges that there are some things that are sort of just supposition. This book does not attempt to unravel the mystery of the researcher's unfortunate passing. Instead, it is content with presenting a great many facts along with some speculation. It is up to the interested reader or researcher to delve further into the matter or to reach his own conclusions. Now, I know this is the way Gray Barker operates, and I, I love it, but I don't know. The, the more time I spend working on these things and thinking about these things, the more I sort of suspect that maybe it's just not a good policy to just throw out wild ideas and say, hey, I'm just throwing things out there or I'm just asking questions or I haven't looked into this. If you think it's a bad idea, maybe why don't you go try to disprove it or something? I'm not sure that's healthy for us as a society, but that's a soapbox I should get on for another time. Now, as to the possibility of Jessup's death actually being a suicide, Barker says this. The writer wishes he had known Dr. Jessup better. Our friendship was limited to correspondence and personal meetings on two occasions. I liked Jessup and enjoyed his company immensely during our meetings. He seemed to have achieved much success as a person, along with whatever fame and recognition that came from his work. His absence from our midst is, as a human being, just as regrettable as is our great loss of his professional capabilities. From our own experiences and trying to keep on going in the UFO field, we can appreciate some of Jessup's great problems. Sometimes, to me, it has been almost understandable to believe the verdict of the examining authorities. Our desire to learn more of the truth and to keep up the fight has, however, urged us to continue. 
it is hard to believe that Jessup, with his great dedication, could have felt or acted any differently. This sits wrongly with me for a number of reasons. And I think the best way to sort of sum up those reasons is this supposition that, well, he he seemed like he was really dedicated to the mystery of the UFOs. And those of us who delve into the mystery of the UFOs, we have some tough times. But I don't know. It seems like he wouldn't give up if he was that dedicated to the UFOs. That just bugs me. And Barker acknowledges that he'd only met Jessup twice. This claim that, you know, his, um, what did he say? His fame and recognition and much success as a person, that is sort of contradicted by things said by people who were closer to him than Barker was. He had had decreasing sales on every book. His publisher had rejected numerous manuscripts. His wife was going to leave him. Things were not going great for Dr. Jessup. And those sorts of psychological hammer blows can sometimes not be sort of contradicted or overcome by one's dedication to the truth about the flying saucer. That's all I'm going to say about it. But this section kind of bugged me, bothered me, just hit me the wrong way. Now, among the other things that Barker includes in this volume are some examples of his correspondence with Jessup. And one of the best things about this is the way that Barker is always finding a way to promote things that he has written or published and that he would like to sell you. This is just a little snippet from a letter that Jessup had written to Barker. I read your report regarding Albert K. Bender with great interest. Looks like something did happen. He probably did stumble onto the truth. I'll be glad of any additional information you may uncover. To his credit, Barker does not follow that up with the ordering information for they knew too much about flying saucers or flying saucers and the three men, uh, Bender's later weird account of it. But I'm pretty sure that if you ordered a book from Saucerian Publications, you got the little catalog, which would have those books listed in there. He also... Barker also goes into Jessup's interest in psychic phenomenon and reproduces material from the Riley Crab book that we talked about a bit earlier, and he introduces it in this way. Many researchers have suggested that it was Jessup's interest in psychic subjects which led to a suicide. It's known that although Jessup began his early research on a rather strict scientific and physical level, he did later express interest in other explanations for the presence of saucers, including those advanced by Mead Lane and the Borderland Sciences Research Associates. And the reason I wanted you to hear that segment is because of the way he phrases it. Many researchers have suggested. I don't really know of any besides the ones that talked to Riley Crabb or the one that talked to Riley Crabb for his book about Jessup. Um, it's just an exaggeration and it makes it bigger than it needs to be. Finally, there was one more book from the early 1980s that Barker published about Jessup called The Jessup Dimension. And this was written by Anna Genslinger. And she undertook a lengthy investigation into Jessup's suicide. 
and came to the conclusion that mind control was involved. So I have not read that book extensively. I have seen bits of it. It is exceedingly rare. There is a modern reprint of it available, but if you've listened to other episodes, you know that I'm not uh, a huge fan of modern reprints. I don't trust them. So that's sort of putting a bow on the Gray Barker involvement in the afterlife of Morris K. Jessup. So what about that seance? That actually happened at some point and was written about in a 1974 issue of the Journal of Borderland Research from the BSRA, the March-April 1974 edition. And Riley Crabb introduces this. And this is a very, very strange thing, but I, I think a suitable sort of end point for the afterlife of Morris K. Jessup. Crabb introduces this whole seance in the following way. Did Jessup actually commit suicide by his own hand? Or was it murder arranged by government agents in cooperation with invaders from outer space? This is one of the mysteries of the flying saucer phenomenon to which there is no definite answer yet. We do know there is a war going on for control of the planet and for control of the hearts, minds, and bodies of the human beings who inhabit it. There is no doubt in our minds that Jessup was a casualty of that war, one of many who have given their lives in the search for truth. The worldwide saucer flap of 1973 indicates that the Battle of Armageddon is accelerating and, of course, victory will go to the forces of light. To better understand how and why this must be so, it would be well to review the work of early UFO researchers like Jessup. Wow, settle down. That seems a bit extreme. So then we get into the seance itself, and we don't ever actually hear the entity being channeled firmly identify himself as Jessup. It is not wise to say who I am, otherwise I might not get through again. This is like a visit to friends, as if one were being visited in prison. Though I'm not in prison in any sense, I'm quite happy, but get homesick. I'm told by others on the etheric plane that revealing my identity would do no good for the research to which I was so dedicated during my days on Earth. So at this point, I think it would be a good time to tell you what the title of this article is, which is credited to M.K. Jessup that was gained through this seance. The title of the article is A Trip to Venus Etheria. Yes, this is basically a contactee story featuring Jessup as the narrator and main character. And I've got one more selection from this about when he lands in a ship, an ether ship, into the etheric realm of Venus. And if you want more ether, um, look for our episode that we did several years ago um, about the Borderland Sciences crowd. So I think it's called a good old-fashioned ether frolic, which is – I just thought that was a fun name. But this is how Jessup describes his landing on this planet. A most beautiful country then met my view. This would be impossible to describe even if I had more time to do so. Our descent was so rapid that I got very little view of it anyhow at that time, and we landed. We landed in a courtyard connected with a very large building, which I can best describe as being made of metallic glass, the same varying translucence as in the window being present. I was met by three people, about six feet in height, very beautiful people, 
all male, dressed in odd costumes of spun glass-like appearance. Nothing like a ski suit, I might add, having read of such earth contacts, but more like a uniform. So what this article does, and there's a link to it in the show notes, is to create a contactee narrative, albeit an etheric channeled one, for Morris K. Jessup, a man who never really gave an indication of being involved in the contactee thing, who in a letter to Barker decried the stupidity of a lot of UFO material that drove off serious researchers, mentioning Adamski by name when he did that. This seems to be a fitting place to end because this story, this taking Jessup and turning him into a contactee against all evidence or reason or sense or compassion or whatever, is symbolic of some of the twists and turns in fact and reason that we are going to see over the next few segments or installments where we look at the further development of this Philadelphia experiment and later iterations of it, such as the Montauk Project and things like that. Things get weird. Things get twisted. But we need to remember that it all began with Morris K. Jessup. And did he commit suicide? Was he murdered? If we listen to those who knew him and those who knew those who knew him, it seems likely. In a blog post back in 2011, David Halperin reprinted a letter that seemed to indicate this was the case. And he didn't have a name on the letter. He only had a return address. And a commenter on the blog pointed out that the return address was the one often used by John Keel. And as we're going to see in later installments, John Keel had some familiarity and knowledge of some of these situations. And so it seems likely this was a letter written by Keel. And this is what Keel or Pseudo Keel, if if we want to be unsure about the authorial provenance of this, this is what Keel slash Pseudo Keel had to say. A great deal of trash has been written about Morris Jessup and the Carlos Allende affair, most of it originating in the little mimeographed newsletters of the 1950s and later perpetuated in hack paperbacks. Mr. Jessup was a close personal friend of the late Ivan T. Sanderson. Hans Stefan Santison, who died in 1975, Long John Neville, New York City radio personality, and others in this area. There was no mystery whatsoever about his death. In 1959, his career was flagging, his books had been failures, his marriage had dissolved, and he was in deep despair. Shortly before he took his life, he wrote letters of farewell to Hans, Long John, and others. He turned over some of his files and his personal copy of the famous Vero edition to Hans. I have seen these materials. The Vero book contains notations in Jessup's own hand, laughing at some of the mysterious marginal comments and speculating on others. He obviously did not take them seriously. And finally, I want to read you something from Jim Mosley's memoir in his section about Morris K. Jessup that is cynical, perhaps, but 
maybe not too far off the mark. He's commenting here on Anna Genslinger's book, The Jessup Dimension, and her theory that Jessup had been driven to suicide by nefarious forces. Mostly says, Genslinger wanted to believe Jessup's death was mysterious, just as so many today want to believe that the government or other mysterious forces are so concerned about saucerdom that the field and leading saucerers are targets of disinformation campaigns, threats, surveillance, telephone taps, and so on. If Jessup knew something important enough for them to drive him to suicide, then saucerers could vicariously feel a little more important. Their drab, dreary lives would be brightened up just a bit, knowing that Jessup knew something they didn't, but which they might somehow someday find out, knowing that they were part of a noble quest for truth. In a lot of ways, Morris K. Jessup is the forgotten man of the Philadelphia experiment. And as we're going to see in further installments in this story, the stories get more outlandish and the people get more outrageous and the claims get more bizarre. But for right now, let's just, in our minds, just to ourselves, remember Morris Jessup, a man who wrote a very serious, earnest book about the study of UFOs, several books about them, and who found himself through really no fault of his own at the center of a lot of weirdness. Thanks for listening. Thanks this issue go to David Halperin, whose blog posts about Jessup's early life and especially his relations of information that was contained in Gray Barker's collection in West Virginia were very much appreciated. Uh, the same goes for johnkeel.com, which has lots of scans, including... Uh, lots of scans from John Keel's files, that is, which included a scan of the letter from the University of Michigan to Gray Barker about Jessup's time there. Friend of the show, Gabriel M., provided some copies of materials from the Barker collection at the Clarksburg Harrison Public Library in Clarksburg, West Virginia. And of course, many thanks go to the erstwhile director of the Barker collection, David Houchin, for being so helpful to so many of us for so long in needing information from that remarkable resource. The website de173.com has more information than I will ever be able to absorb, but for this episode, I used it for readable copies of the letters between Jessup and Iende. So thanks again for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual so, uh, social media or email channels, and we'll address them on our feedback episode next week. And then after that, we look at Carlos Allende slash Carl Allen. Who was he? Who did others say he was? Who did he say he was? And how did that change over time? It is a fascinating story. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>